You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Today on the show, I'm joined by Tova Friedman, who is a Holocaust survivor of Auschwitz. Tova has recently released her new book, The Daughter of Auschwitz, that she wrote alongside award-winning foreign correspondent Malcolm Brabant, who has reported from over 80 countries. Tova was just five when she and her parents were sent to a Nazi labour camp. And she was almost six when she and her mother were forced into a packed cattle truck and sent to Auschwitz II, also known as the Birkenau Extermination Camp. We have long wanted to bring an Auschwitz survivor onto the podcast. And believe me, we had tried many a time. Who better than Tova, who since the World War has gone on to become a therapist, a writer, and even a social media TikTok star. During six months of incarceration in Birkenau, Tova witnessed atrocities that she could never forget, and she experienced numerous escapes from death. She is one of only a handful of Jews to have entered a gas chamber and has lived to tell the tale. In this interview today, I spoke with Tova about her earliest memories of the war and of Auschwitz, what it was like for a five-year-old girl to have her head shaved and to be tattooed at just five years old, what was it like sleeping next to dead corpses, how she survived the gas chamber, if Adolf Hitler was alive, what would she say to him today? I hope that you enjoyed this bittersweet conversation with the incredible Tova Friedman and the extremely rigorous Malcolm Brabant. For years, I had wanted to write about about myself, but I'm a speaker mostly, and I've been speaking everywhere. Every, in fact, just before you this program, I just got another phone call to speak next week, which I said I can't. But um, and then uh, I met Malcolm. And um, he inspired me to, to cooperate in writing because when you write, it's a different type of experience than when you speak, not only emotionally, but also in the content. You know, when you're quiet and you think about your life, it's different than when you speak in front of three or 400 people. You just say things that you know well but when you write, you think, and more things come out that did not do not come out when you talk. So when Malcolm was, you know, kind enough to do it, I thought we could, we could try. I'm more about for you, Malcolm, because you you were, a, as I kind of mentioned, you were an award winning uh, broadcaster. What was the kind of motivation for you with this whole uh, with it re- releasing this book? Well, what, what happened was that uh, Tova and I were having a conversation um, when we were doing something else together in, in New York, and she said she wanted to write the book, and I was just I had been talking to a publisher about 
another book actually and I said well listen why don't we give it a go together and uh, because I know that her story is the most extraordinary story human story I've ever ever come across actually I have to say you know and luckily I've got to, to help tell it at the end of um, you know a long career of all the you know the fascinating people I've met I mean Tova is really up there when I met her in in um, Krakow in southern Poland on the 75th anniversary I kind of fell in love with her a little bit because um, in journalism you you get to meet presidents and celebrities and prime ministers but for me the most important thing is meeting ordinary people who've done extraordinary things and when I met Tova I realized that I was in the presence of a historical figure and and those historical figures are not always going to be with us and so um, it was an honor that she actually uh, allowed me to sort of help co coincide, you know, help co collaborate on her story. I, know, I never thought of myself as a historical figure, a hysterical figure, maybe. You are. Not a historical <laughs> no, figure. No, just when I got things wrong sometimes, Tova. But um, no, you are a historical figure. And, and, you know, you are one of the few remaining people, um, you know, who can talk about these things. And, um, and the thing is, as your son Shani says, you are um, a lady of a certain age who's got the most energy of that age group that he's ever come across. And you're doing an extraordinary job in sort of uh, trying to, you know, keep the Holocaust alive. And I mean, one of the things that we've tried to do together in this book is to make it sort of immersive and to actually not just tell the story um, of, of what uh, Tova went through, but to show it. And that's the kind of legacy of, of tele television journalism in a way is that you you show rather than you tell. And I think that, you know, when you read the book, you'll you'll sort of feel, hopefully, that you're in the shoes of Tova and her family and terrible shoes they were. It's difficult for me to actually imagine that this is not a fictional book because some of it is just completely unbelievable. But at the start of the book, you say that I think one of the motivations was that, you know, there was a survey done. A lot of people... They, they don't really know much about this. So Tova, for you, it seems like a motivation, if I'm right, was kind of raising awareness, raising the education that this did happen and it only happened eight years ago. Is that is that correct? You know, uh, I was interviewed by a lovely guy in New Jersey, but he writes for um, London Times. He was very good. And he told me, which shocked me because he's in his 40s and very intelligent, married man with a family, responsible, works here for, for the London Times. And he said there were things he did not know. And that shocked me because if he doesn't know, what about the 20-year-olds who aren't as educated and as in the news? He knows the news. He writes the news. So, so when he didn't know, I said to myself, wow, maybe I'm glad I did it because he learned new things and I wouldn't expect him to. So I'm very happy that I am, I will be able to reach people who never had an inkling of any of this. One of the things that I, I think makes this, this book different in a way, actually, is that uh, it's not just about Auschwitz. And what it does do is it tells the whole tale of of how um, the Jews in, um, in in Toba's town were just persecuted all the way through um, the, the the Holocaust, and the, that it began virtually in in 1940. People seem to think, you know, if they don't, haven't paid enough attention, that it just happened uh, when people were shipped off to the, the death camps. 
but the way in which Tova's family and friends and her people were, were persecuted all the way through and stripped of absolutely everything by the Germans is, is just appalling. And I think that um, that was one of the things that sort of, uh, you know, I came to find sort of surprising in a way, just the, the level of cruelty um, and you know, disgraceful behavior that went on in the ghettos, not, you know, besides everything that went on in the death camps. See, right, I, I agree with Malcolm because a lot of people don't know how something started. I didn't wake up one day in Auschwitz. It was a culmination. It was it was like I I've been through one terrible experience uh, from one to the other from the age of one, two, three. It's slowly, you know what happens is it 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 it's like I always think of it as a triangle. It was uh, terrible things were happening all over Europe to Jews. Nobody was listening. Even the Jews couldn't believe it. I asked my father, why didn't you leave? Maybe to Israel or England or something. He said, no, I thought this crazy man, Hitler, somebody's going to stop him. Who's going to listen to a guy like that? So in a sense, things were happening. And then the screws got tighter and tighter. And Auschwitz was the final solution. It was the end of all of those experiences, not the beginning of the experiences. There were Kristallnacht, there were pogroms, there were a lot of things that somewhere in the during that period could have been stopped. Kristallnacht, had somebody objected to this terrible thing, it may have been the end of it, but nobody did. So, so Auschwitz was really the final solution. There was no place to go after that. You fit, your life was, you, you were done. That's why it's, it's, it's good that there was written about like the ghettos. How many people know what happened in the ghettos? Right. So, As we say, I mean, people have heard of, of the Warsaw ghetto, but you know, there were schools of these places in every town in occupied Germany where there were Jews. And so, you know, what happened to the people in the Warsaw Ghetto happened on a, a just a smaller scale, but no less brutal in all the other places. And that's what I think, you know, may enlighten some people in that, you know, ordinary little Polish towns that you pass through these days, you know, were places of terrible, terrible human rights abuses and murder and mass murder. Right. And that was, I think, perhaps one of the biggest uh, learning experiences for me in the book. So I wonder if we could kind of go back there. Uh, Tova, kind of what are your earliest memories from these ghettos? Say it again, I'm sorry. I've got a very strong Welsh accent, it's, it's my fault. No, 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 it's okay. <laughs> I can understand Malcolm, I can understand. Well, we can't understand the Welsh, actually. So. <laughs> so I wonder if we could kind of go back to what your earliest memories were of these ghettos. Well, they started at the age of two, two and a half where I saw shootings. In fact, shooting was as normal to me as children falling nowadays or playing in a kindergarten. Uh, the ghetto, my memory of the ghetto was the loss of whatever family I had because they were, were all gone very, very quickly. And the people around me disappeared very quickly. Um, in Thomas of Mazowiecki, the concentration of choice, I have to say, was Treblinka. 
and we knew when 8,000 people were going to Treblinka. I knew the words and I knew people weren't coming back, although I couldn't imagine it. And then I remember uh, dealing with the clothing of those people. You see, it was a real fabulously organized machine. I have to say that in order to have the Holocaust functioning the way Hitler wanted, you had to be a genius. You couldn't, uh, simple people couldn't do it. That's why it's so painful to me. It's not the simple person. It is the, the, the educated person. So they didn't want to waste anything. So when you went on the, on the a train to, to your death, all your clothing was taken away from you. Even the shoes, you didn't go in naked, but you almost were naked. So you arrived because they knew you'd be dead anyhow. So then they took all that clothes and they, and they um, cleaned it and washed it and, and sent it to Germany because some of it was pretty good stuff that we had. Our family were tailors. Most of our, the town was made up of a lot of tailors. In fact, there was a Jewish profession in Poland, Jewish profession of choice because we couldn't own property or anything. So tailoring was perfect, right? Unless you were a scholar, but you were a tailor or a scholar. So uh, the clothing was pretty good because the tailors made the clothes for their families. And all that was taken and, and organized. And, and that's, I remember, you know, looking at it and, and, and taking care of it together with my mother and other women. It was like a women's job. So uh, there's a lot of memories of, of, of that period. Did your parents explain to you at the time kind of what was going on? My mother did. But you know what? Explanations are only words. You can't, your brain isn't always developed to understand it all. But I knew that if I don't, see, that's what she knew. And that's what, that's the way I raised my children. And I think my daughter is, my kids are doing it with their, with their children. You don't lie to kids. You don't cover anything up. You don't sweeten something that's very sour. They have to know it. They have to understand it. And my mother told me, I, I could see, I knew that the clothes that we were, we were organizing into piles, you know, like, like, like separating the children from the adults, from men and women were from dead people. She told me that she said, if you want something, you can't have it. Somebody died. We're not, we're not benefiting by that. So I knew right away. I knew that a little girl was killed. And then I saw the shooting. I, yes, she explained to me as much as I could understand. As much as I, you know, in the age of, and the older I got, the more she explained to me. She mostly verified what I saw because you know what? I th I'm a therapist. There is nothing worse that if you are looking at something and somebody says to you, no, 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 this is not what you, this is not what you think it is. It's completely different. And you say, but I'm looking at it. And the other person who's older and wiser will say no. And then you begin to question yourself. Did I make a mistake? Do I not understand this? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? They had to verify it. Yes, she said. Yes. 
This is where people bodies are being burned. The smell is the smell of burning flesh. She told me that. I think uh, when I was kind of reading about your childhood, one of the things that I I I had to double take a double take to make sure that I'd read this right. You say that you know your diet at one point was six pounds of bread and seven ounces of sugar per person per month, and at one point you say that you were so deprived of nutrients that you were licking the walls to try to extra extract calcium from the chalk you, in the paint. What you have to get is what boggles my mind, that the death killing millions is a very big job mm. and you have to do it well. I'm talking from the point of view, you know, from the German point of view, and you have to do it scientifically. How do you do it? There are not enough bullets. I mean, logically, it's a logical issue. So what they did, they starved us. How do they know how to starve us? They had professionals, dietitians, doctors with diplomas who knew how much to give us. They would, for instance, it would be something like, um, we have 2000 people in this particular place. There is a transport coming. There's only room for 1500. What are we going to do with the other 500? Um, we don't have enough bullets or do we don't want to waste the bullets, even if we have them. You could drown them. Can you imagine you could drown them? They would drown people. They would tie them. I'm not even sure I said it in the book, but 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 uh, it's 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 a not it's it's people read the material. They would they would tie two or three people together with rocks and put and drown them. Or you can starve them. So starvation, it depended how long they wanted you to stick around of how much food they would give you. So in a ghetto, we got a little bit more. In Auschwitz, we had to die quickly. They didn't have enough space. Do you know what I mean, how organized this was? That's why they were successful. Your mother said to you, when you were on your way to Auschwitz, point at a gas chamber. This is where they take you if you're not perfect. The smoke you smell is human beings. And you're five years old by this point. I'd love to ask you kind of, at an emotional level, for a five-year-old to hear all this, no. what, is, what is going on for, for a five-year-old? I was a different five-year-old. Mm. I have grandchildren. Not five anymore, but you would never do that. It was a different mentality when all you know was war and death, when you watch people being shot at the age of three, when, when, when you watch, when you walk outside and there are all these dead bodies and I knew they died from hunger, you are not the same person. You're not a three-year-old, a four-year-old. You may, you, your body may be three and four, not your mind. So when we got off the train, I could smell it and I smelled it from then on. It was permeated everywhere. It wasn't, you know, and when she said, be still, can you imagine, you have children? I don't know no, if you do or not. Okay. Not that okay. I know of anyway. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, take, take a six-year-old now with this as they stand still. They will listen for five minutes. Who's going to listen? They don't have that mentality. They don't have to. They have their own free inner freedom. I didn't have that. 
I had to obey because obeying means life. Disobeying means death. And I saw people who disobeyed. They were killed right in front of me. I think perhaps one of the things that, again, you know, truly unbelievable, you know, you paint a very vivid, a very graphic, I guess, account of the scenery and also the smell. I mean, I wonder if you could kind of recount what, what that smell was like, because this, again, this is one of the, it's the small details, I think, that really kind of give you chills. You know what? I can only use words. There is no way that I can describe it to you. I I, I hate to say that. It's, I can't describe hunger to you. There's no way, because if you don't have lunch, you're hungry. That's... That's not hunger. That's something very little, mild. It's like a little flea, you know, nothing. I can't describe it to you. It is, I don't know. Have you ever had your hair burned or something by accident? Like you smell certain kind of, the burning of humans, it's got a particular smell especially if it goes on and on and on and on and on. Toba had tr trouble, I think, trying to describe um, hunger in the book. And that's where we tried to sort of come up with a, um, a way of describing what it was like. And um, we, we sort of came to the, the, the feeling that it was like having a monster inside you that's eating every part of the human being inside you. You're being devoured from within. And I think, Toba, there was, you described in once about having a, a terrible sort of cold inside you uh, from, from the hunger that um, is something that, you, you know, you just, you can't, you can, you can never forget that. And, forget but the monster's that. kind of eating, it's like a, you know, it's like this multi-headed Greek monster that's sort of eating at every piece of human flesh inside you. It's devouring you from within. And the pain must have been unbelievable. So uh, one of the things know. that... Sorry? No, and the thought process. I didn't even know much about food, so I couldn't even picture it. But I know that's all I thought about. That's all all of us thought about. That's why many people died, except people like me, that my mother was very tight, holding me, you know, her reign. But when the, then when the liberation came, the first thing people did was eat. It was like an obsession and the body couldn't take it. So many of them died from dysentery. But your mother was so smart then actually, wasn't she? Right. Because she, she stopped you from, you know, following everybody else and, and she gradually weaned right. you onto food. And that's why you're here today. And that's why it means by obeying. If she said, don't eat a second piece, I would never dare. You know, because she she was my my lifesaver. She knew what to do, and I listened. In the book, your mother sounded incredibly street smart, for a lack of a of a better term. Why was she like that? Because she seemed to be the reason, perhaps, that you are here today. When you are fighting for yourself, you behave in one way. If you're fighting for your child you behave completely differently. She wasn't fighting for herself. I suspect that if she didn't have me, she would have died. 
she would have succumbed to it. And a lot of research has been done on something like that, that if you had a reason to live, then you could survive better. If you had no reason, if you had no family waiting for you, if you've got no children, if you knew that when you, if you survive, there'll be nobody left, I'm not sure you wanted to survive. Except most people hoped that my mother also hoped that her family would still, somebody would survive. But the idea that she had to protect me was all her thought process, how to handle a child when she knew the children were the, the first victims. We were the first ones. And then came the elderly. It clearly shows how, I guess, attuned to this she was, because at one point, I think as just a young child, you were getting attacked by a guard. And in that moment, you know, when your mother was there, she overrided all of her maternal instincts because she knew that if she got involved, you both would probably be killed. So I think that's a testament to, I guess, but I how- know it too. But I know it too. We both know it. I could have cried. I could have ran to her. Isn't it normal for a five and a half year old child when somebody hits you to, to run to your mom that's standing right there? But I knew the consequences because I've been watching. You know, you gotta watch, you gotta see. In a, in a situation like that, every move could mean death. Every move, every move. I remember thinking to myself, if I stand in the front, is that good? No, maybe I should go to the back. Maybe I should, I should go to where we walked out for the counting. But I sort of followed my mother and that day she stood in the front. Other days she stood in the back. So I stood next to her and I wouldn't have been seen. You know, every, it's so interesting. I don't know if you've read other books, but things like if you stand here, then the Gestapo will have one feeling towards you and maybe save you. If you stand here, the same person, he may not like it or something and have you killed. It, it, because you know why? It was an irrational nightmare. It, it, it wasn't a thought out. It's, it's, and also the thought that if not now, you'll be killed later. There was no question about it. So. What, what role would you say that fate or I guess extreme luck or, or chance played in you surviving all this? I think it's luck. I think uh, when you speak to anybody who survived Auschwitz, they will, they will tell you it was luck. Because I always said to myself, I wasn't better than the other children. Or maybe I said it not to feel guilty. Um, I wasn't richer. I wasn't smarter. It just said I arrived on a Sunday, which I only found out the last 10 years. I didn't know that. And the situation wasn't, they, that's what this guy who wrote the book, Michael, I forgot his last name. Um, he, he said that uh, they didn't want to open up to, 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 to fire up another uh, gas chamber or crematorium because we were going to die anyhow. It didn't matter today or next day. So they, the, Ger the Germans, they were Christians, which I never understood either, by the way. I never did any study 
what kind of Christianity they followed. And they wouldn't work too much on Sunday. And then there are other, I mean, I think Malcolm uh, wrote a few theories because we don't know why I wasn't killed. Because 99.9 .9 kids were killed immediately. In fact, if you were 14, you were told by everybody who stood near you, even if it's not your parents, just say you're 16, say you're 16, stand straight and go a little bit on your tiptoes because at 16 you could work. So you had to try to be 16. I've heard these stories over and over again of 12 year old trying to look 16. So they shouldn't be killed. So it just. And if I'm right in, in saying you also survived one of the only survivors of a trip to the gas chamber. Yeah, I don't understand that either. Well, I wasn't the only one. It was a whole barrack of people. You know, my, all my kids, all the kids that were with me. I don't know what happened. I remember all the details. I even feel the cold. It was so cold. And I, I don't know. Again, Malcolm tried to do some research because that's his field of research like that. And he came up with some ideas. I don't know. I just, I just don't know. I mean, it may have been a coincidence, but it, uh, around about the time, and we can't be sure of this, um, the total was there. Um, the the head the head of um, the, the the Gestapo, basically the head of uh, the, the whole sort of the death camp process, decided that there was going to be no more gassing, because the thing is, the 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 Allies were making progress, and they didn't want there to be any more evidence of um, of the sort of mass slaughter and genocide that they were carrying out. And so there was there came a day in the autumn of 1944 when there were no more gassings, and it's you know perfectly possible that you know that happened, and that the message came down on the day that Tova and her uh, her her fellow children from that barrack were led to the gas chamber. But uh, I mean, we, we will never know that if that was the day because we haven't been able to work out precisely you know when it was that Tova went there. But that is that, that's one theory. And it's pretty remarkable that you were actually inside this gas chamber as this. Well, I wasn't in the gas chamber. I was in the ante room. Okay. I was in the waiting room. I, I, if, if I were inside, I, I don't know what would happen unless they stopped gassing that day. I don't know. But uh, I was in the waiting room. And I remember the free. See, you know, a child doesn't have any theory or intellectual thought process. We know we f we feel physically left, right. Like I remember walking down the steps a little bit or s tiny steps. And I remember the big room with all the numbers all around for the hooks. And I couldn't read the numbers. So I remember the, 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 the physical thing. And I remember them shouting, you know what they were shouting about? And the, the cold waiting and waiting. And I remember it was daytime when we went, came back at night. Because at night, I, I, I didn't see the women, I heard them. And again, my mother asked me, and I remember her, her, her voice. And I told her, again, the reason it's so detailed, because I'm low and short, so I see only the bottom, everything around, I don't see up. 
do. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because I thought of that. that I, I, just, I just need to help Tober a little bit with the, the the narrative there, because what happened was that when Tober went to the the gas chamber with those children, she went past the area of the camp where her mother was with all of these other people and um, her mother shouted out to her saying where are you going and Tova said we're going to the gas chamber and then you know the the, the women were ast astonished when they came back a few hours later right and I was sort of apologetic almost I said they couldn't do it this time they'll do it next time I felt my the job wasn't done whatever it was supposed to have been done so <laughs> I, again, when I was I was reading the book, it was you know, it's it's really hard for me, I guess, to to fathom that this isn't a, like a, a a just a terrible dream, like it's not some sort of terrible sick work of fiction. Does does it feel like that to you in some ways, like that this yeah, actually I, happened? I want to tell you something. Hmm. Uh, going back to Auschwitz, I've been back a number of times, but I remember going back with my daughter. Uh, I think she had her children with her. I can't remember. Oh, we were no, no. That was that was before the children because somebody made a movie. So, and it's very quiet there. Yeah. And my daughter takes out an apple, just an apple from a backpack. It was lunchtime, and she eats it. I get furious, furious, and I say to her, "How can you eat when all these people are starving?" She looks around. She said, what people? And she started crying because I was very, very upset at her. And I realized that I wasn't here. I was somewhere else. I was back. And I was among the starving people. And there was an apple available. So I had to apologize. You know, I'm a little crazy. But it, it, it almost feels that it's impossible. Then I went another time and I went to Block 11, which I did not know was that when I was there. I didn't know about Block 11. I knew that there was a place where there were people, but they showed me the place where they were kept, the people who were slated to die. I never forgot that, by the way. That's after as an adult. The space was about, let's say, two feet with walls it was like a like a space and they would they would put all the people who were going to just about to go to the they were waiting to have space and those people could hardly walk because they were so and they would put like 30 people that's why the the woman who we had a wonderful guide who was a professor she wasn't just the guy, she was professor in a Polish university in the Holocaust. So she, she pointed out how many people were put together while they were waiting to be taken to the gas chambers. And all I could see is those people. It was in my mind for weeks afterwards because I saw them walking around the Muslim manner, you know, they couldn't, they were like, nothing there was nothing there just you could see everything from the inside and then they were taken into they were gathered from the camp and put into that particular space while they were waiting can i just it's help me. clarify that a little bit for the so that people might not understand what a muslimana is 
these were people who had basically given up on life. They, they, and they were called Muslimana because they, they were like Muslims who were praying. They were, they were thin, you know, beyond thin and starved to death, and they could barely move. And so they were, you know, on on the verge of death itself. Those, that's that's what it means. Right, but the but the picture in my mind because I really could picture it. I say, ah, that's where they put them. See, I heard about it, but I didn't see it. Ah, that's where they put those people. And for weeks afterwards, I was sorry that I, she, she took us there. So even me, am shocked to this day. Mm. So, I, you know, we're trying to talk about it, just five years old, you know, you've, you've had your head shaven, you've been tattooed. Um, I think perhaps one of the most remarkable stories in the book is kind of how your mother led you to an infirmary where you had to lay next to a corpse which in fact allowed you to survive i wonder if you could share this story with us you know what of all the stories to me this was the easiest it was the easiest because i was never afraid of a corpse ever and the corpse was still warm. So I was, you know, all this happened around January because it was the end of the war. That's when the allies came. And Poland is freezing at that time of the year, freezing. So I hadn't seen my mother for months. Here I knew she was not far away. And she told me how to behave under the blanket, how to breathe into the floor, you know, with my nose and my mouth. She turned my head in such a way I didn't resist. I knew exactly what she was. I was helping her and how not to move. And then she said to me, and you know, the corpse was visible. And she said to me, I will be the only one who, who will uncover you. So don't uncover no matter what. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm pretty lucky. A warm, I had a blanket. My mother wasn't far away. And in some way, I felt safe because she wasn't far away. So um, it, 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 it gave me a feeling that I'll make it. I, I may really make it. Except when the guy came to check, you know, the assess the person. And that's when I held my breath. That was, ooh. One more minute that I would have to breathe, but I was fine. He passed by. He first checked if the corpse is really dead, and it was really dead. So, pretty remarkable, and just I guess really shows how small the margins were between death and life. Absolutely, um, there were minutes, minutes between life and death. A second exactly right what was it like for you when the allies turned up at that point when they came when they came yeah what was it like to i guess finally be free what was that like i just wanted to eat you know i freedom and all that i just wanted food but i remember how small i was because i was picked up by a soldier and i looked at my mother and she didn't panic so it was a good soldier i thought he was like that because i was six and a half and he threw me up and caught me again and 
it was like a, 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 a no experience. And then all I wanted was to eat. And nothing mattered. Nothing mattered. And they were very good about it because they started kitchens. And it's the first time I smelled fresh bread in my whole life, you know? And, and they made some kind of soup, which I only ate later because my stomach wasn't, a, wasn't good. And that's where my mother took me around and showed me all the dead people. Can you imagine after I saw all the, oh, the sight is even worse. People were sitting leaning against barracks, you know, and in front of them were like pots of soup from the from the Russians that they and their stomach was completely like open and everything was out. It was the most frightening. That was frightening to me. And she said, that's what will happen if you don't listen to, to me. You, yeah. Apparently hundreds and hundreds, I don't know how many, I didn't do research. Lots of people died after the war like that from overeating. You say in the book, I lived with a constant fear that my parents would be butchered in front of my eyes or that they would disappear and never come back. From the moment I awoke, I was scared that it would be my turn to be killed next. I wonder, because obviously you're, you're a therapist, as you mentioned, do you feel that it's possible to process something like this for what a young person goes through? Is that even possible to ever come to really terms with it? It's very hard. A friend of mine called me yesterday that I have not spoken in 50 years. He didn't even know I was in Auschwitz because we didn't talk about it. He was in Russia in a, in a, um, uh, you know, one of those, um, gulags, uh, which one? A gulag. Right. Gulags camps where you work very hard. Was, and he said to me, you know, I, we were teenagers together. I've been, I knew you all through my teenage years. Why did you? you never told me I said because I didn't want to because that I didn't want to be seen as that and I didn't want you to be sorry for me and 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 it just wasn't the time in the 50s and 60s nobody wanted to hear so it was very hard then but I was very lucky in a way after my mother's death and so forth I met this fabulous therapist and for five years, like the Kaplan, I was with her for five years. And she helped me in every possible way. And the truth is, I still go to a therapist once in a while. Because, you know, you, you don't really recuperate. You learn to manage. You learn to put it aside when you have no time for it. And when you have time for it, it comes out. It really does. I, I, it's... I'd love to ask you, uh, Malcolm, um, yeah. because, you know, I was kind of going through your story. And I know, for instance, that you've covered uh, genocide within Bosnia. And in the book, you know, you kind of talk about uh, that it's hard to comprehend kind of the absence of conscience, conscience, the casual manner in which so much of these murders were committed. 
Do you think that it's possible to see something of this scale ever again? Well, I, th I think you just have to look at um, you know what's happening in Ukraine to see and to to see the sort of brutal murders that are taking place, and there there is a I don't know whether it actually sort of constitutes genocide, but it's certainly brutal, and uh, the, the the rules of war are being broken, um, and I think you know the the story that we've written is really a story for all times, um, and uh, hopefully this is it, it'll be fresh for people so they can see that these sorts of things. Uh, can happen. We, we 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 didn't sort of you know go out to compare it to um, to Russia's invasion because we were coming to the end of the book when Russia went into Ukraine. But I mean, you just have to look at what has happened over the past thirty years to see the the numbers of occasions where there has been genocide since. And you know what Tova went through was the most extreme sort of form of humanity's wickedness to other human beings. But people are capable of doing those dreadful things. Um, and what's interesting about the um, the ghetto is that uh, there were Poles, you know, who lived out nearby, who were actually sort of facilitating in a way. And one of my experiences of, of being in central Bosnia was that actually the brutality sometimes was was much closer, where neighbours uh, turn on neighbours. Uh, there was much more sort of hatred. And there was resentment that went into the attacks that, you know, for example, the Serbs would perpetrate against the Muslims, or the Croats would perpetrate against the Muslims, and, and occasionally they might sort of fight back. But um, the and look at look at Rwanda uh, as well, which is perhaps the worst example, where you had over a you know million people murdered, you know, just because they belonged to the wrong tribe. So. As human beings, we are capable of, of the worst sorts of atrocities and often towards the people that are closest to us. So hopefully the lesson of the book is that um, you just never let it get that far. And as Toba you know, rightly says, the thing is that nobody took any notice. And so um, the worst thing to do is to ignore things. You just have to speak out because otherwise things you know, will, will get out of control. I mean, it took 20 years for um, Adolf Hitler to write Mein Kampf for you know, Toba's family and people to end up in, in death camps. Um, it could happen much more quickly these days. And there is no excuse for it to happen because we all have social media, we're all aware of what's going on and we cannot let hatred spread. And what worries me is that I know in Europe, probably also here, anti-Semitism is increasing terribly and it's very scary. I mean, why all of a sudden, what is, I wish I knew the reason that, why right now? And the only thing that gives me comfort, of course, is Israel, because it's a very, I was just there. I just came back last week and it gave me the pride of seeing a very powerful nation. Very, they're very powerful there. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it in the last three years that I wasn't there the country has rebuilt itself. I think they doubled the number of houses and, 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 and roads. It's just gigantic right now. And I feel protected. I feel protected by Israel as a Jew. And, but it's very scary. And I wish, I wish people like you would, would um, talk to those hatred mongers. Why? What's going on? 
Well, Toby, you, you yourself the other day, actually, when we were doing another conversation, you mentioned, you know, what it was, and it was scapegoating, is that people always look for scapegoats. That was the word that you used. People that what? I'm sorry. They, they scapegoat. They look for scapegoats. Oh, yes, scapegoat. But why now? I mean, why do we need, yes, why do they need scapegoats right now? Why? It's something happened. We, what did we do? I mean, Germany kept saying that we have their jobs, which is ridiculous, of course. And that, and that they would be much better off. That's why the country followed him. Kill all the Jews, call the, kill all those you don't want to, the mentally ill, the gypsies, uh, well, the Romans and the gypsies, but kill them all and we'll have a great country. It's stupidity, but it's a reason, you know, there's, it's a, even if it's a made up reason. But why? I don't know of any reasons right now. Right now, what 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 is it? Maybe you would know. I don't. One of the questions I think that really came up uh, that people would be really interested, I think, to find out is in the book. I know you talk about not survivors' guilt, but survivors' growth. Now, I would love to ask you, kind of, from everything, kind of, that you went through, and you detail it in in you know incredible uh detail in this book is how has all that experience that you went through kind of uh given way to your philosophy for how you lived your life after you kind of come out of those horrific experiences well, you know, it's interesting because at first i would say i have no guilt because i don't feel it you know i know i'm a therapist and i know how guilt feels i don't feel it but in a way you could say I do because I have an obligation. And from the very, from the very beginning, I wanted to share it with people so they should know and nobody wanted to hear me. The moment that the society was ready, I spoke about it. And the reason I speak about it uh, is I don't want those, all those souls to be forgotten. Um, you're not Jewish, are you? No, no. No, so I just want to give you a little Jewish ceremony is that when we go to a grave, a Jewish grave, we put a rock, a little rock on on the a little stone on the monument. And so you should so whoever passes by will know that somebody thinks about this person. Well, those people have no monuments. They are ashes, right? So my talking is like putting a, a, a reminder. Remember the million and a half children? Look how the world would have been different. All the musicians and, and the philosophers and the scientists and the artists and all gone. And the million of people. So I, I speak in a sense, it's almost a, I speak sometimes so often that I'm exhausted literally physically and emotionally exhausted because I feel I should. I feel that I survive for a reason. I can't go on, you know, business as usual. I can't do it. I can't think like that. So maybe that's how I, ex it also heals me. That's how I express that feeling of I'm here and they're not. A hypothetical question that I found quite interesting that was sent into us. If you had the chance to speak to Hitler or an SS guard or Johann 
crop fish or anything like that, what would you say to them? There was nothing to say. There was nothing to say. But I would like to speak to a German that is my my age, who I'm more interested, how can a normal, Hitler was crazy. We know about that. We found out he's got, he had psychological issues. He was, he was on medication. And at the end of his time, he had so much medication that his hands were shaking. He would meet his soldiers because like that, because his hands were shaking. He was crazy. You can't ask a crazy person. You can ask a normal person why they followed him. That's what I want to do. I want to address uh, a people in Germany, if they ever let me, of that age group. Like, let's say, well, I don't know if they're around anymore. I have to do it fast. <laughs> let's say the people who are now 90, 95, who were, or they were very young though. How can they follow a person like that? What psychology would allow a normal person who's married with a family and children and has a job to say, yes, let's kill our neighbors so we can have what? Their paintings, their house. I can't imagine. Can you imagine somebody coming to you and saying, "You look, I have a neighbor's great next door, fabulous house. Must be, I haven't been inside, but it looks great. Somebody's going to give me and say, go, we'll get rid of that old, she's 95 years old lady. We can smother her and all that inside is yours. How, how does that work? What allows, that's what I want to know. What allowed the German people to do that? I don't know what I would say to Hitler or I just, I, I wish you had been an, a, a painter. We would have been much happier if you had gotten to the into the art school <laughs> <laughs> yeah um uh, the, by the time this podcast goes live the book will be out uh where can these these listeners the people that watch our show that read our, our blogs and stuff where can they connect with you guys what messages you want to share with them about the book and anything you'd like to send our audience to go ahead what do you want to say anything that's well my my website's out there, so and so is my address, and I'll, I'll answer people's questions very happily. Yeah, uh, I think I have a website. You probably, uh, my, your son's probably organized it, so you probably... My son did it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what we didn't do is to put the website in the book, I guess it, the timing, oh. the timing was different. But yeah, we have right. a website, and I'll ask, I will answer any questions anytime. Morning. Let's ask you a question, Joe. Let's ask you a question, please. What is what is your main takeaway from the book? That if you don't talk about these things, if you let them fester, and you don't talk about the unimaginable horrors that went on, then people will forget about them, and you cannot let that happen. That was really one of the things that I think was communicated in this, and I I hoped that was the message. Because, I mean, obviously for me, I'm 26. It's led to a great deal of awareness for me. So if that was your intention, then certainly. Absolutely. Has... I just, I, I think, I think the last chapter is called Remember Us. Mm. Those people who are not here. I hope there is a heaven or something and they can look down and see that we, we try to remember them in some way. 
everything discussed today will be in a link below in our description so our audience can just swipe up we'll also put a link to, uh, to over to your tiktok page you you're a bit of a oh, TikTok. The TikTok. Yeah, well, <laughs> mike i just want to tell you something quickly yesterday there was a ceremony here in new jersey where my grandson got a um an award statue or something you know like a like a flame made out of something not to call these things uh with his name on it as a thank you of an upstanding high school student mm -hmm. who has reached more people his age who knew nothing about the holocaust 50 million people mm -hmm. kids mostly kids who, who who are on tiktok although it's becoming much more popular now but when he started there was hardly maybe six months ago or less so um that's what it is the young people have to carry on your grandson's doing a great job as well i mean getting yeah. half a million followers at least is pretty spectacular yeah isn't it it's yeah. amazing so but what tells me is that people are interested that's what tells me and i get questions so many questions constantly well guys i want to pay my tribute to both of you for coming on for writing this amazing book for, for sharing the experiences. Everything discussed will be, be linked below. This has been a real privilege for me, a real highlight in the five years we've run this show. So thank you both so, so much for coming on and taking Thank you the time. very much for having Thanks us. For having us. Yep. Oh.